Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. Good morning, church. So great to see each of you here this morning. Today, we are continuing our series called Is Christ Enough? We are walking through the letter of uh, Colossians. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey. And so we're looking at what he had to say to them about 2,000 years ago. And uh, so if you have a Bible with you, open up to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. Today we're going to be in verses 15 through 23. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. You can look on the screen. Uh, We'll have the verses on the screen for you as well. Uh, Well, thank you for being here this morning. Um, Let's let's pray and let's ask the Lord uh, to truly bless us as we receive his word this morning. Lord Jesus, we... We love you. We thank you that we get to open up the Word of God, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to humanity, that you want to be known, and Lord, that you've given us truth, absolute truth that we can look to. So Jesus, as we look to your Word and as we try to understand it, would you bless us and help us do that? through your Holy Spirit, enlighten us to what it really means. And Lord, use your word to transform our hearts, to transform who we actually are, to draw us to yourself. Would you do this today in our midst? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my daughter, uh, Harper, she turned seven years old back in January of this year, and she's, uh, she's very artistic. She, she loves drawing and painting and coloring and things like this. And so uh, we heard about the uh, Van Gogh exhibit downtown. So maybe, maybe some of you have been. Um, so my wife, Christy, she took Harper and along with our mother-in-law, uh, the three of them went to the Van Gogh exhibit to look at the artwork of the famous uh, artist, Van Gogh. And so uh, I, didn't, I didn't go, but they told me all about it, and I saw the videos, and I saw the pictures, and it's really just amazing. Like, it looked like it was just incredible and, and really fascinating because what, what the exhibit was doing, you know, there's, there's pieces moving, so it's, there's, it's very motion-oriented. The paintings are really coming to life. And so the art itself is coming to life before you. You're, you're immersed in it. It's like you're a part of it. But the funny thing about that is, you know, you're, you're really not seeing anything new, necessarily. You're seeing those, those old paintings from Van Gogh, but the exhibit is helping you notice things that perhaps you've never noticed before. So as you're looking at, you know, for example, Starry Night, probably his most famous painting. If you're looking at Starry Night, you may notice certain details because you are at this exhibit, you're immersed in it, it's all around you, and you see, right, you see through these 3D images all around you, the, the brush strokes and the way it all comes together, and so you're, it's expanding, right? It's expanding your appreciation and your understanding, and for the actual painting itself, it's bringing attention to the beautiful details. Well, in a similar way, That is what the Apostle Paul does next in this letter that he wrote to the Christians living in the ancient city of Colossae. Paul is prompting them, as well as us, the modern-day reader of this letter, he's prompting us to take a closer look at the beauty of Christ, 
of who he really is. Not, not to see something new. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He is the eternal God who does not change, but perhaps we have overlooked something about him. Perhaps we have not given enough attention to some of the details of who Christ really is. And I believe that as we read specifically verses 15 through 20, still in the first part of this letter, as we read this, it's a beautiful exhibit, if you will, of the, not just the artistry, it's poetic in language, but of the beauty, the grandeur, and the power of who Jesus Christ actually is. You see, the more we see the beauty of anything in this world, the more we grow to appreciate it. That could be art. It could be your job and and what you do and how you contribute to society. It could be your marriage, your spouse. It could be anything, really. The more we see the beauty of something, the more our love for it grows. These verses today, I hope, will prompt us to see the beauty of Christ in His fullness, in all detail, and prompt us to love Him even more. So I want to read verses 15 through 20 uh, together with you so that we really get the full effect, and, and then I'll break it down verse by verse. So listen to verses 15 through 20, or you could read along on the screen. Here it goes. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Verse 15, he says, He is the image, speaking of Jesus, of course, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, I think there's something amazing, a few things really, that that Paul wants us to see in this beautiful description of who Jesus actually is. And I think the overall statement that we need to see this morning is, we must see and submit to all that Christ truly is. We must see and submit to all that he truly, actually claims to be if he is telling the truth. This matters for all of us. The first thing I think we see here in Paul's beautiful description of Christ is he is Lord of creation. He is the exclusive Lord of the cosmos. We see this in verses 15 through 17. So I want us to kind of walk through these verses a little bit to understand uh, a little bit better what Paul is getting at here. What is he really saying? Well, in verse 15, look what he says. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the first half of that sentence, Paul is saying that in Christ, 
we see who God is because he is God. Jesus is God. He is the son of God as the Bible describes him. And so it's mysterious and it's hard for us to fully understand what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God. God is one in essence, exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So you don't have to fully comprehend this. We can't, by the way. You see, we're very finite beings. So we only understand one type of existence and that's humanity, right? And the mortal things around us. But God is eternal, right? He is an eternal being unlike us. And so it is more than logical for him to exist in one essence in three persons. There is one God. But what we see here is that Jesus Christ, Paul says, shows us what God is like because he is God. He is God in the flesh. So when Jesus comes to earth, he is born of the Virgin Mary. He is fully God, fully divine, but in human flesh and also fully human. He is both. He is not 75% human, 25% God. He's not 50-50. He is all God, all human at the same time. And so when Paul continues in the sentence, you notice that he says the firstborn. Now, that is the ancient sense of the word, as in the son of the family who would get an inheritance and become the leader of the family. So when Paul uses that word firstborn, he's not saying that Jesus was born at some point in eternity past, right? No, he's saying that Jesus is fully God. He has always existed within the Trinitarian Godhead, but he is the firstborn status, right? So this is a word about status, not creation. He is the son of God. Jesus has the right, in other words, and the privilege to inherit God's kingdom. He is the ruler over creation with this firstborn status. All right, verse 16, look at this. Paul continues this beautiful statement about Jesus. He says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. By the way, this proves that he's not, he was not created himself. He has always existed because all things were created by him, right? So the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle once referred to God as the unmoved mover. In other words, he was the first cause of everything that we see, the effects of creation around us. There must have been a first cause. That first cause is God himself, namely Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the things we can see, the things we can't see, right? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is the creator of all things, Paul says. All things. Everything that you walk outside and look at and you think is so beautiful, the sunset, right? The stars. Maybe you saw Venus and... Uh, I think it was Venus and Jupiter that were super close together and very bright uh, in the western sky over the last couple of weeks. I noticed them a couple of times, right? It's just amazing, right? I didn't know they were Venus and Jupiter at first. I had to Google it, but you know what I mean, right? It's good stuff. Jesus, the creator of all things. John chapter one, verses one through three says it this way. John, again, very poetically tells us in the beginning was the word. That's a capital W word referring to Christ, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not any 
thing made that was made. Jesus is eternal. He has always existed. He is part of the eternal triune Godhead, the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. He is over all things. He is over thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. In other words, He's over all human institutions. He ordains and orchestrates who rulers are and where they rule. Everything was made by Him, ordained by Him, and ultimately... All things are used to bring Him glory. Even when we can't seem to fathom exactly why that is the case in the events in the local news and the national and world news going on, we see turmoil, we see war, we see all these things. But what we know is that at the end of time, all things eventually bring glory to God in ways that our finite, limited understanding cannot comprehend. Jesus is working all things together to bring him eternal glory. He is the creator of all things. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only, think about that, not only is he the creator of the universe, he is also, Jesus is the sustainer, the sustainer of the universe, because only he has the power to hold it all together. Now, I don't know about you, but I am clumsy and I have a hard time holding things together. And I don't mean that metaphorically. Literally, yesterday, I was FaceTiming with my mom and my kids and and Christy. It was my mom's birthday and she lives in the Atlanta area. And uh, I was FaceTiming her, telling her happy birthday. And what do I do? Right in the smack middle of the call, I drop my iPhone on the ground and it shatters the screen. This happened yesterday. I am still kind of mad about it. All right, give me comforting words later or contribute to a new phone that I'm going to have to buy. I can't even hold my phone. Literally, I can't even hold my phone together, okay? Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He holds the laws of nature together. He holds humanity's existence together. How is it that we haven't wiped ourselves off this this earth with a nuclear disaster or some disease completely? annihilating the human race because Jesus says it's not time because Jesus says so because he is the sustainer of our existence he is the the sustainer of all things gravity the law of nature there is no single molecule there is no single molecule in this universe that is out of his control The only reason the earth is still tilted exactly as it must be to support life and the atmosphere is calculated exactly as it must be for our water cycle to continue and for life and oxygen so that we have the right amount of oxygen and just the right amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for everything to work together. Jesus is the one sustaining all of this. As the earth rotates on its axis and revolves around the sun at just the right length for human life to be supported on this planet over and over and over again, Jesus is sustaining these things. Maybe like me, you've been fascinated with NASA's new James Webb telescope. These images from deep space that we're, I mean, we're seeing things for the first time. Look at that, right? That's incredible. We're seeing, the humans are seeing things 
that we've never seen before. But they've been there ever since Jesus created them. What we're really seeing are things that Jesus has created and sustained for His eternal glory and purposes all along. Whatever science reveals to us is showing us what God has already known to be true. What He made. Science and Christianity can actually coexist and go beautifully together if we understand that what we're discovering are things that God already knew to be true. So creation itself The vast universe and the cosmos tell us that there is intentionality in the things we see around us. There is intentional design in the things we see in our lives. The anatomy of the human body, the way the tides of the ocean work, the way the ecosystems and life is sustainable on this planet. It screams that it was designed It was not a result of random molecules somehow floating together or evolving over time. It was a design by a designer. There's intentionality in it, and only a personal being can produce intentionality. And this personal being we know, the Bible tells us, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did he create the galaxies and planets, the earth, mountains, and oceans, he also created humans. Believe it or not, humans are his greatest creation. Because what sets the human race apart from the rest of God's creation is that he created us in his image. Now that's important for us to understand. What that means is that we are capable, we are capable of reflecting God's love, his beauty, his goodness. As God loves, so we are capable of loving As God forgives, so we are capable of forgiving. I say capable because we don't like we should. But God created humans so that we would populate this planet with image bearers of himself. That we would be a representation of his glory, of his goodness. That we would bring him glory as we live and work and produce fully functioning societies that thrive, that deep in the hearts of us, as we love one another, as we sacrifice for one another, we would be evidence ourselves that there is a good creator God. It was his intention. It was God's intention to live among humans He lived in the presence of the first humans, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. They got to commune with God. They got to be with God. But what we know to be true is that something went wrong. Something's wrong with the world, isn't there? You know, it's funny, isn't it, that Christians and non-Christians, we actually agree that something is deeply wrong with the world. It's very evident. We see that there is war, there's violence, there's injustice, there's all kinds of issues that are going on around us. There's disease, there's decay. 
And so there's all kinds of things around us that are very clear and very visible for us to see and understand something is wrong with the world. Something is deeply wrong with us, with humanity. We actually just talked about this on Wednesdays during our current and equip class. We're going through apologetics right now, studying the, the, the defense of the Christian faith here at the church. And uh, I referenced this book Wednesday. It's a book called Only One Way, by, uh, edited by Richard Phillips with different authors contributing. And in this book, Christians, Christians and non-Christians, he says, we, we agree, right, that something is wrong, but where we differ, right, where we differ is the root of the problem. See, that's where, we, that's where we start to separate in our Christian worldview versus a secular mindset is what is really the root of all these problems, right? The violence, the injustice, the, injustice, the breakdown of relationships and all, these, all the strife, right? The unforgiveness, the disease, the decay. What is the root of these issues? Well, Philip says, you know, according to the world, right? So in this secular mindset, the problem perhaps is ignorance, and so the solution is education. If, if humans, if we just, if we were properly educated about all these things, right, then we could eventually fix it, right? We'll, we'll fix the problems of the world if we just properly educate ourselves. Or perhaps another problem is our upbringing, our social environment that we grew up in. And so the solution is societal reengineering. If we can come up with just the right social systems, we can fix the problems of humanity, Perhaps the problem, they say, is mortality. We're dying. We have disease in the world. And so advancement in medicine, that would be the ultimate solution to fix the problem of humanity so we can live longer, right? And as we're working on that, we'll figure out other creature comforts to make ourselves happy and, and look better. So that's why Botox exists, right? So in other words, Philip says, the world's solution to the problem of humanity is, well, we're, we're working on it. We just haven't had enough time yet to fix all these problems. And so as humanity progresses and as we evolve over time, eventually we're going to get to that point. We're going to get to that point kind of like on Star Trek where everything is just right, you know? Where we can get to that point where we have finally made it as as a human race, and there's no more problems. We're just going to fix everything eventually. But this is where we differ. As Christians, with our worldview, according to what we believe the Bible teaches about humanity and God himself, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that we do know the problem, and it's not those things. Those things are problems, but they're not the root. Look at this in what Romans 1 says. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So humanity, they are without excuse. In other words, we see God's created world. We see the intentionality and the design of a creator and we say, there must be a God. But as he said earlier, we have suppressed this truth. We, want, we don't want to answer. We don't want to answer to any kind of authority over us. We want to be our own authority. That is the way 
That is the philosophical mindset of our time. Well, I don't have to answer to anyone. I can answer to myself. But that's not a new mindset. That's an ancient problem. We don't want to submit to a God who is authoritative over us. That's scary. A cloud of cosmic dust can't hold you accountable, as I once heard R.C. Sproul say. But God can. So we suppress his existence. We suppress his truth. So we can live however we want and get away with it. That makes sense in our minds. Verse 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So perhaps he's thinking of you know, ancient Egypt where you see in the hieroglyphics and you see in the discoveries we've made over the years, you know, the, the gods... Right, that they had created and worshipped were in the form of mammals and birds and reptiles and things like this. And maybe that's what Paul's imaging, right? That's maybe what he's imagining as he's as he's writing this letter to the Romans who also had statues of gods, right, all around their city in Rome. But today it comes in different forms. It's not so much the statues, though you can see those and find those in different places around the world, but in our American modern society, it's more our status symbols our pursuit of wealth, our need to be approved by others, our need to be respected, our education perhaps. It's the things that we think will give us what only truly a God who created all things can give us. Eternal life, peace, happiness, joy, meaning and purpose. Verse 25, Paul later says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. In other words, Paul says, the great problem of humanity, the root problem is that we have all exchanged the truth of who God is. We have suppressed that. We have exchanged it for a lie. And the lie is that something in the creation is actually better for us than the creator himself. Think about how foolish we are to say that, to believe that, to do that, to live as if the Lord of the cosmos is not smart enough for us. <laughs> Maybe he forgot something. Maybe he doesn't have our interest in mind. That He's not capable and willing to give us what we need. That he's not good enough for us to entrust our lives entirely to and submit to. So this rebellion, because of this rebellion by God's greatest creatures, this has separated us from him. We can no longer live with God forever as He designed us to. You see, the Bible calls this sin. That's the word the Bible uses to describe this great tragedy of, of us rejecting God's authority over us. And our sin separates us from God. Yet still, God Himself doesn't change. He is still Lord of the cosmos and will judge all sinful creatures fairly and completely as a holy and just judge should do. So the only hope for humanity is we somehow, that we somehow be reconciled to God. That somehow peace can be made between us and our Creator whom we have rejected and rebelled against. And with that understanding, we now look to verses 18 through 20. That was a lot to pack into a few verses, but look at, look at the transition Paul makes now. So 
We must see Christ for all He truly is, which includes the fact that He's Lord of creation. He's Lord of the cosmos. But number two, He is also Lord of a new creation. A new creation. Look at what Paul says. This might sound uh, unfamiliar or strange at first, but, but listen, verse 18, and He is the head of the body of the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, in light of what we just discussed, right, about humanity's root problem, our sin and our separation from our Creator God. Paul is describing something very amazing and encouraging here in verses 18 through 20. You see, Jesus is doing something about the problem. He did not leave us to wander by ourselves trying to figure it out. We're working on it. We just need more time as a human race to fix all these problems in the world. No, Jesus did not leave us to die in our sin. He came to rescue us. That's right. That's right. The Lord of the universe who created the image you just saw just a second ago, right? Who created the stars, who tells the oceans their boundaries, who created the ecosystem in which we live and thrive as a race, as the human race, Jesus is not going to let sin win. The Lord of the universe came to earth. Is that unbelievable for you? The Lord of the universe came to earth and took on human flesh. He rebelled against, who rebelled against him, he came to save those, right? Who actually rebelled against him to rescue humans. He's not going to let sin win. He is going to renew everything. He's going to make, he's going to put everything right. He's going to make all things new again and right again. The world will one day function and operate exactly as he originally designed it to. So you could say it this way. Jesus is creating something again. There's a new creation. Okay. Okay, pastor, but why would Paul, why would he move from this great description of who Jesus, the Lord of the cosmos, is in verses 15 through 17 to, to talking about the church? He references the church. It seems random. It almost seems out of place, doesn't it? What does the church have to do with this in verse 18? Well, Mark Maynell, a theologian, says the words and structure of verses 18 through 20 deliberately echo those of verses 15 through 17. He says the implication, therefore, is that the church is the starting point for God's new creation. Its very existence assures us that everything will be remade, restored, and renewed. Or as my NIV study Bible puts it, the church is where one sees and experiences the reconciliation of all things on earth. Kind of sounds like a lot of pressure on us, doesn't it? 
the church. The church is supposed to be where the world sees and where people can experience what Christ is doing and creating a new creation. What He is working on to create all things new again, to make things right. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I can carry that burden. I don't think our church can carry that burden. I mean, I love y'all, but we ain't perfect, all right? We're still sinful creatures who do sinful things. But no, this is first and foremost about Christ. Don't lose focus. Don't think too much about the church just yet. This is first and foremost still about Christ. What does Paul say? He is the head of the church body. There's more to learn about our Savior. He is the beginning, he says in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The firstborn from the dead. What in the world is Paul talking about? See, that's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? He was the first to conquer death. And so anyone, right, anyone united to Christ in faith will also conquer death one day. So death for a believer, someone who has trusted Christ to be their Savior, is only a passing to eternal life, right? The resurrection of Jesus truly has changed everything. It's changed everything. It shows that Jesus is going to and is able to make everything right to destroy the curse that sin has put on this world. Our Creator Christ can fix. He can fix the human problem, and the resurrection proves that. Verse 19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So again, Jesus is fully God and fully man, making Him the only exclusive one who could even reconcile people to God. Richard Phillips says, we need someone else. We need someone else to work on our problem. Humanity, here's the funny thing about this. Just a normal human cannot fix the problem of all of humanity. It's going to take an outside source. Philip says, someone not corrupted by sin, which is the very good news that Christianity proclaims. When Christians say that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior, we mean that Jesus is the sinless Savior who is uniquely able to solve the problems that our efforts can only make worse. Have you ever tried to fix something and you only made it worse? Yeah, that's like me doing all home repairs. Only made it worse, right? But that's exactly our problem. We try to make things better, don't we? I mean, I don't want to, I'm not trying to, you know, depress you or it, but think about your own life. Think about your own struggles. What have you tried to make better on your own willpower without any outside help? How has that gone for you? But as a human race, the same is true. We cannot internally fix this. There must be an outside source who comes into the picture and does what we cannot do. But that outside source 
must not be tainted and corrupted by this sinful problem we had, or else he couldn't fix it. You see, Jesus is the sinless Savior. Someone, only someone who is God and human. That's why it's so crucial to understand that what Paul's saying here, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, right? And verse 20, and through him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of what? His cross. So, so follow this, okay? So only someone who is both God and human, in other words, only someone who is perfect and without sin, but can relate to us, who is both only someone who is a perfect eternal God, but also able to walk in our shoes and suffer in the same ways we do. Only someone who is both of those things can pay the penalty of the curse of sin against our lives. And how? That's what Paul says in verse 20, by making peace by the blood of his cross. When Jesus died on the cross, I want you to understand what was happening. It's the center point of all human history. Everything was culminating in a moment. All the wars, all the violence, all the strife, all the relational breakdown, all of the unforgiveness, all of the hate, all of the disease and all of the decay, it was culminating in a moment where it was poured out on Jesus' body himself. The Lord God of the cosmos hung naked on a cross so that you would never have to. There is no greater love. There is no greater sacrifice for the infinite God of all things to give up his rights and his privileges to come to this nasty, broken world and suffer. To not be born in a palace, but be born in a feeding trough. To be born into poverty. To grow up in a very impoverished life. To be ridiculed and mocked. All the way to the point of being murdered unjustly. But in all of that, he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never did anything outside of God's intentionality and design for this world. And he did that because he knew that you can't. He did that so that we could fail and still have eternal life. He died on the cross and spilt his blood so that we wouldn't have to. It was truly in your place. It was in your place. That's the death that I should have died for my own rebellion against my creator. But my creator died for me. He died for you. He paid the penalty of that sin that must have been paid so that we could live with God forever. He rose from the grave to prove and to defeat the power of that sin. Do you see the cross is necessary? It's the only hope for humanity to be reconciled to God and to each other. 
It's the only way everything in the universe can be made right. Christ's death was necessary for cosmic peace, you could say. Now, how does the church, how does the people, the family of God, how do we fit into this? That's the third thing I want us to see. We haven't read these verses yet, so I'll read them quickly. Number three, not only is Jesus Lord of this new creation, the people of God that he's redeeming, that he's creating anew, making things right. Number three, he is the Lord of our everyday lives. Look at verse 21. Paul says, and you, and you, how do you fit into this? We've talked about how great Jesus is, how he gave up his life for us. Now, how do you fit into this? He says, and you, Christian, who once were alienated from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, living however you wanted, doing everything outside of God's intention and design for your life, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you before the Holy Father. Holy. He's presenting you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because on the cross, Jesus took your sin. He took that on himself and crucified it with his body. But he gives you his record of righteousness. There was an exchange taking place. So he takes your penalty and gives you his freedom. Gives you his glory. Gives you his goodness. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which, was been, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul says, why would you not? Why would you not continue stable and steadfast? Don't shift. Don't shift from the gospel of what Jesus has done for you, Paul says. I just want to conclude with a few final thoughts to think about this beautiful passage we've looked at today. You know, Christ, Christ, we see here in this text, Christ is the exclusive answer and solution to the world's problems. He must be. There is literally no other possible means or method because we're working on it, we'll not cut it. It doesn't matter. We'll never progress far enough to eradicate the problem of the human heart. The problem lies within. It is inherent in our nature to not want to answer to God's authority, to not want to love others and put the interest of others before our own. No one has to teach you how to do something wrong. You grow up knowing that. I see that. I've got a seven, a five, and a three-year-old. Let me tell you. I don't have to tell them what the wrong thing is. We have to be taught what the right thing is. We're working on it. It's not going to cut it. Mark Maynell, to quote him again, he says, Paul claims a message of absolute relevance to every person and every nation and every era. In other words, the gospel, the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ himself affects all of us if he was who he truly said he was. If this Jesus is really who he said he was, you have to respond. You have to do something with his claim. So I want to ask you today, what are you going to do with Jesus?
C.S. Lewis, one of the great thinkers of the modern age. C.S. Lewis used this argument, you could call it, when challenging skeptics to think about who Jesus really is. He says, listen, you really only have three options. He's either a lunatic. C.S. Lewis says Jesus was either a lunatic, so he was crazy, he was out of his mind, he didn't know what he was doing, he was just a crazy person, right? And who gained a following somehow. That's option one. And so, of course, therefore, what he said was not true, right? But number two, the second option is just that he was a liar, right? So he just, he knew what he was doing, but he was lying about it, right? So he just lied and put on this show or whatever and gained a following that way. So he was either a lunatic, a liar, or Lewis says, or the only other option is that he was telling the truth about who he was. Is that he actually was the Lord of the universe. C.S. Lewis's point is everybody has to respond to this. And just to say that he's an interesting guy or a good moral teacher, a moral teacher would not claim the things that he claimed. Just a good teacher like Buddha or some other philosopher of, our, of the ancient world as, as the world would ascribe to them as good teachers, right? If he's just another one of those gurus, he wouldn't be good because his claims are exclusive. He claimed to be God. So if Jesus really is who he said he is, then the death, then his death and his resurrection matters for you, for everyone. See, if we're going to see and we're going to submit to all that Christ truly is, then let me ask you, if you do profess to be a follower of Jesus today, the cross is the centerpiece of history, but is Jesus the centerpiece of your life? Really? Do you trust him enough to truly relinquish your need to be in control of your life? Do you trust the Lord of all creation that he knows what he's doing with your life? I want to let you in on a funny little secret. You're not in control. We strive so much in our modern age to be in control of all things around us. In our personal lives, we think we can control every little thing. And the funny thing about that is, is control is an illusion. We're not in control. But we grasp at whatever we can and we buy whatever we can to make us feel that we are. But the cosmic Lord of the universe who sustains all things, he's in control. And he can be trusted because he has given his life for you. He loves you more than you love yourself. And that's crazy to think about, isn't it? So what are you holding on to for that illusion of control? Where are you not listening to the word of God? Where are you trying to manufacture the outcome in your life today when really you just need to say, Lord, I trust that you are the one in control of this and I give this truly to you. It's intimidating for us to think of us being part of this new creation, maybe the church. How does that make you feel, though, to be a part of something bigger than yourself? Maybe it overwhelms you, but guess what? We're all in this together. Maybe you feel incapable, but guess what? God has a purpose, and it's his power. He has a purpose for every person in his family. Maybe you came in here today and you feel hypocritical because you're not living up to the witness you need to be for Christ in your life. 
even though you claim to be a follower of Jesus. Let me say two things. One, nobody's perfect. But number two, maybe there is some sin you need to confess. Maybe there is something you're holding on to. Maybe there is something you're doing to others that is sinful, and you need to confess that to the Lord. But here, here's the comfort. Here's the comfort. God himself, the Lord, the exclusive Lord of the universe, he lives in you, Christ follower. You have all of him. You have all of him. Not just part of him, he gives you everything. You have everything you need in him. We are a part of this new creation. A testament of its reality. But don't keep the focus on yourself. Keep the focus on Christ, the exclusive cosmic Lord. You have Him. You have Him. And that's more than enough.